and welcome to the TNW podcast. I am your host, Andre Degeler. I hope you are now enjoying the holiday period and getting some very well-deserved rest. And to make it even more enjoyable, we are bringing you another bonus episode of the show. And this time we're going to focus on the European venture capital industry. As usual, we've got two interviews for you today. The first one is with Kinga Stanislavska, the founder of European Women in VC and co-founder of Experior VC. I caught up with Kinga in September at Tech Barbecue in Copenhagen, and there we talked about the state of diversity in European VC and the potential ways to solve the issues that we are facing there. Here is the conversation in full. Please do enjoy. So, Kinga Stanislavska, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So uh, let's start with uh, talking a little bit about uh, your own uh, background. So what it is that you have been doing throughout your uh, career in uh, the venture capital world? Well, I actually started out working at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development in London. A long time ago, I started investing into funds. They were mostly growth funds and it was not a venture space yet. But I got very excited about technology and it seemed that that was the fastest growing segment. And then from that, I had the opportunity to set up my own VC fund in Poland with another partner. We started investing in the digital space, the standard stuff that a VC would do, B2B SaaS and um, e-commerce and gaming and so on. And then I kind of began to understand that Venture is much wider than that, that there's a lot of exciting deep tech companies, that there is a lot of scientists doing cool stuff. And I wanted a much more European outlook. So I joined the board of the European Innovation Council and then later the fund itself as an independent investment committee member. And European Women in VC is something that I founded because I saw a gap in the market that the women who were running funds didn't really know each other so well. Um, and I wanted to build a community. So here we are, fast forward five years. We have the pleasure of launching our last piece of research on Tech Barbecue main stage. Great. So uh, so starting from uh, what you said before, so what does it mean to be an independent uh, investment uh, uh, committee member? Okay, so a lot of funds want to have independent people sitting on the investment committee, i.e. those that are not investing in that fund their own money, or they're really getting paid from the management fee in a regular way. They want external expertise in certain spaces, sectors or verticals. In this case, it was more about building a pan-European deep tech ecosystem. So when you're building a new fund, you often want external expertise to help you especially in those first stages, to make it better, faster, and to have a steeper learning curve. Yeah, that makes sense. And so what was your uh, logic in moving from uh, being a full-time VC to starting to work on uh, European Women and, v and VC? What is it even? Is the company, is the foundation? Uh... Well, uh, it's actually a bit like a startup. It's my passion project. I also have other roles in life. But it's something that I started coming from this idea of building a community. But I very quickly understood that what really women need in this sector is, first of all, male allies. Secondly, more money to be able to invest. And so what we wanted to find out was even, you know, top level, what is the role of women in venture in Europe? And that was the question we asked ourselves last year. We learned that 16% of partners are women, people with a partner title, but they only command 9% of assets under management. 
which shows that some of the largest and the most influential VCs out there don't really have female shareholders, don't really have female partners. But the female partners are up and coming from the bottom up. So they're starting their own funds where they're managing the money, but it's small. It can be nano funds, it can be micro funds or solo GPs. That's the trend right now. So what we're excited about is for those emerging and early stage managers who have mixed teams or who are female-led and co-led to raise money faster, to raise more, and to also be able to execute on their own strategies, on their own investment thesis, the ones that they truly believe are taking the world forward. Right. So we should expect, if things go the same way as they have been so far, uh, we should expect more representation of uh, female uh, partners uh, in uh, larger, major uh, yes. VC funds. Absolutely. It's one of the findings of the research is we found that 25% of general partner shareholders, so people that own shares, they're now female, but in the largest funds it's 10%. In the largest funds, there needs to be more of a faster succession in some of them for those women to be coming up. So that was one conclusion. And another one is that the vast, vast majority of the market believes that there will be a change in the next five years, that women will be more, actually, and also diverse teams, uh, there will be different types of diversity, that these a little bit different than today, people are going to be helping making investment decisions. They're going to be involved in that. They're going to be getting carry. And in that way, we're going to have a bit of a different product mixed in terms of what gets funded and what solutions come to market. So you do expect that this will improve things for female founders, which are also yes. uh, disproportionately not getting uh, funding for their projects yes, at this yes. point. Right now, female founders, so companies that are female-led, get around 2% of yeah, exactly. VG money. Unfortunately, it does not go up or that really doesn't come down either. And it doesn't matter if we are in a record year, 2021 with 100 billion, or we're now probably half the size of that. It's always hovering around that level. Same goes for mixed teams. But what we think is that if we change the entire ecosystem top down and we have different types of investors, we should end up with a different funding mix at the bottom. Right, because that was also one of my questions. We have been talking about uh, equity and representation and uh, the issues uh, with female founders for years now. Like it has been in the focus of uh, conferences like uh, we are at right now. But there is no, it doesn't move the needle. There is no, no. change uh, in all the surveys, in uh, all the reports. We see the same numbers. Yes. Why is it, why is it like that in your opinion? Well, <laughs> it's true that it doesn't really move. But, you know, there are times where you need just one or two motivators, one or two indicators to move things. Uh, and I do believe that at one point we will have a number of women who will do unicorn exits. And that's what can really change this is once you see that there is a clear path, that there is a path to follow, that there is somebody who's already done it. It's a little bit about ecosystem built. You know, I'm always impressed with how Estonia built an ecosystem following Skype. I hope that women in Europe can build more of a better ecosystem for themselves by showcasing more of the success stories and investors just simply making the basic decision of following that trend. Right. 
And uh, going back to the question of uh, uh, female partners uh, with uh, VCs, I don't want to be negative about it, but uh, I had another conversation today with someone and uh, what I heard is that and uh, so, so she is a founder and she had this experience of uh, coming to a VC and then uh, VC would think, okay, so here's a female founder, we should uh, get her to talk to our uh, female partner. But, yes. th- but then in the words of this person I was talking to, so I'm talking to this female partner, but she has zero weight in her company and she she is not able to make uh, the make the decision of uh, uh, investing in my company. So it's actually yes. not better, but even worse uh, at some point. So uh, how do how do we solve that? Yeah, I mean, we have seen that too. We have seen that we are interacting even on an LP level with a man. And then he says, oh, you know, you have this group of women better that the woman deals with it. I don't see why. I think, you know, today on the panel that we had at Tech Barbecue, we had two male investors that command a, a huge, huge pool of money. We had uh, one of the investors who manages a huge asset manager of, what, 90 billion euros, assets under management, and uh, and also another one, another male colleague. And that just shows that we don't need to be focusing only on women in a female discussion. There, there needs to be a lot of change, surely. I think that the main change that can happen is when the male allies are actually the ones pushing this. We were working together. Uh, what I mentioned yesterday at a panel that we were at was that the best investors for a female general partner in a venture space is a man who has a daughter who studies STEM. Okay, that's a that's an interesting point. That makes a lot of sense. And do you think the uh, the government uh, and European institutions, let's say, have a, have a role to play in uh, improving things in the ecosystem? Absolutely. I think you know we cannot underestimate in general the role of government in creating sectors. The venture ecosystem in Europe is heavily dependent on taxpayer-funded institutions. And of course, we should be moving away from that, but we need to be doing that in a sensible way. We need to be bringing more private money. We need to be accelerating and catalyzing those pension funds, those insurance companies, but also those old school type family offices that invested in real industry, getting them to be mission aligned in the venture space because it's venture that solves the issues. It's there where really the big challenges are happening. It's likely not in private equity and not in buying shares on the stock exchange from a different from a different shareholder. So I think we need to be pushing that much more. I do think that we need um, a lot of catalyst movements on the fund of funds space. What is very unfortunate is we do not really have many European fund of funds. We need many, many more. And we need really these top ecosystem players who will then take the risk of investing into more venture funds. And uh, I think that's a big role for taxpayer institutions, how to fund the next level of fund of funds so that we can make the entire ecosystem more competitive, but also just fill in those gaps. You know, if you're a VC and you're raising from a government institution, you still need to raise from others. No, of uh, course. It's not enough to to just have the one or, or even two. Um, so we do need to build that. We do need those that are happy to sit on this long-term patient capital that really delivers a change to be able to participate. And I think that is the role now of governments, not just to think about startups, but also to think how to create a fund of fund space. 
And uh, this is uh, something that I also I think I already heard in uh, a previous interview uh, that uh, uh, you did, uh, one of uh, that I was watching before uh, preparing for this one. And you said that uh, we need a fund of funds uh, to actually help uh, female uh, fund managers with their first tickets uh, starting out. Has something materialized in that direction? No. What we did for that was with um, Laura Estefani Gonzalez, who manages a fund in Miami called the Venture City. We got a group of 27 general partners as a working group under the European Commissioner. We produced a white paper that basically gave free recommendations. One was, we don't understand the ecosystem, let's measure things. And so our reports now serve to solve for that. The second point was, yes, we need to create a new European fund of funds, which will allow also for anchoring what emerging managers, and they are often women, don't have as anchor investors. So we need to find this institution that will very fast anchor those funds so that they can go on and raise more money from the private market. And what seemed to us as a gap, and I still see that, is the anchoring effect. We still are not doing that um, as Europe fast enough. And so how can we solve for that? Well, the best way to solve for it is to have new specialized fund of funds. So if you think about, for example, a fund of funds that will focus on deep tech. That's a bit of a different ball game than investing in B2B SaaS and digitalization. So somebody who truly understands that space. Climate is another space that today is up and coming. Let's have a fund of funds that is also held by taxpayer money that is managing in that space and that understands the specificities of clean tech and green tech and, and you know green energy and so on. Why not? And I think this is what we really, really could use right now. Is that realistic, though? It's going to take ages. Uh, knowing how uh, long it usually takes uh, for these uh, institutions to uh, make uh, moves like this, it, it is not going to be very fast. Like, is it, is, it the, um, is it the optimal way of solving these problems? Well, the optimal way is always to make it free and market-based. Of course, okay, that, that, that's always the optimal problem. I think, you know, we are, however, at a time where... Pension funds have a denominator effect and they can only allocate the 5% to alternatives. That's a limit. Um, some of the more, how do you say this, um, adventurous and risk uh, okay to take pension funds externally, not necessarily in Europe, are doing much, much more. The US has endowments that are doing a lot. In Europe, we don't really have university endowments. So what we're trying to solve is a market gap at that level. And yes, it does take an awful long time. But then, you know, we have to start somewhere. We didn't really have a very much of a VC ecosystem in Europe 20 years ago. And now uh, what the projections are saying is that Europe is going to be the best performing region in the future. When in 2011, the amount of capital going to Europe to startups pretty much matched or even was a bit more than in the US. So for the first time, I think, you know, we're, we're doing well and we can do even better. But yeah, it does take time. You're absolutely right. Uh, and we need people to actually want that change. And uh, do you see the actual existing VCs, uh, the incumbents, do you, do, do you see this will uh, for change? Do you see this will to uh, embrace uh, this change? Well, I, I, I mean, first of all, we have, I guess, a few incumbents, but how many new VCs do we have? 
So that's what I'm very positive about is that we are getting specialists in very niche fields where they really truly will be picking the best companies in the world because they have that special competency. There's a lot of deep tech coming to market, which wasn't the case earlier. You know, I think all in all, one thing is what will a legacy, like a, you know, a long-term historical player do? Well, a lot of them are diversifying from basic strategies. They're thinking about maybe they do an early stage fund, maybe a later stage fund, maybe a focus fund. There's different things going on. But then the vast amount of the change on the venture space is actually all the little guys, the people that are, you know, you and me build a VC fund tomorrow and we have this and that idea. Um, and really there are some very innovative um, investment thesis coming to market. And I think that's the big change, the new people that are bringing in the new things. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, to wrap it up, I wanted also to ask, so obviously we have uh, a lot of uh, work uh, in front of the ecosystem uh, to cover uh, this gap uh, that uh, you uh, mentioned in your uh, reports. But if we compare the ecosystems, so European to the rest of the world, how, like, uh, where do we sit? How well do we do in terms of uh, this uh, female representation in uh, VCs? Well, compared to the U.S., it's pretty much the same, uh, unfortunately. U.S. is having a bit of a different battle. They, For them, diversity comes from a different angle. And I think this was mentioned also in one of the panels today. Europe is much more diversity-driven because it sees diversity as a value rather than a must-do. Yes, everyone has a long, long way to go. Uh, historically... We haven't had that much diversity or that many women managing funds in the US or in Europe. But those are the changes that need to be made and, uh, and they are being made. So slowly we'll get there. I have not looked much at Asia, to be honest, in terms of fund management. But again, there are some countries that don't have very many female partners, female VCs. Japan is a pretty traditional market, and I think uh, that is probably even not as good as, as Europe. That needs to change a lot. So I do think that we're making a global change, actually. Um, and, you know, and there are also some really awesome initiatives for emerging markets, for Africa, for LATAM. Uh, there's a lot of buzz trying to help female fund managers raise money also in those new economies, well, new, I mean, in an investment sense. And that's absolutely awesome. So I think we will be looking at a very good five years ahead of us. Perfect. Thank you so much. I hope to talk to you next year about your next report. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for joining the show and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks a lot to Kinga for coming on the show. Moving forward, our next interview was recorded at another conference, namely Slush in Helsinki just a few weeks ago, and there I sat down with Stan Tamkivi, the partner at Plural Platform and a prominent member of the so-called Skype Mafia. We discussed his vision of the European VC landscape as well as some predictions for the year 2024. Let's hear it now. So I just wanted to start, if that's okay, with uh, with yourself and your own background. I mean, you're a reasonably known figure within the uh, technology ecosystem, but how do you introduce yourself when you have to? Who are you now? 
Yeah, so I still think of myself as an entrepreneur first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So I've been building software companies all my life, starting my first one when I was 18 and kind of never looked back. Right. And sometimes I've started my own companies and sometimes joined other people in the very early stage. So the biggest story in that category uh, has been Skype. Mm -hmm. And uh, then while at Skype and, and running and operating teams at scale, then, then I started dabbling with angel investing. So I have done that for like 15 years now. And only in the last few years, I've decided to go full on portfolio mode. So I still love building early stage companies. The format has shifted from being the CEO to being an early investor, but the, right. but the passion is the same. So. Right. And uh, you have on your badge, let me read, plural platform. So I, I'm, I have questions about both words in this case. <laughs> so, okay, first, what is plural? Plural uh, is a venture capital vehicle that we've created to enable very experienced founders and operators to back the next generation of founders. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we, we felt that uh, that is in, in the very early stages of building a company, having an investor who has this empathy towards what you're going through is, mm -hmm. is actually very useful. Uh, and and we felt that that category of investors is underrepresented in Europe. And so we fixed right. that. Right. I mean, there are other uh, operator-created uh, funds and VC firms, right? Yes, and it's geographically very different. So mm -hmm. Estonia, where I come from, many investors are, are former founders. If you look at Europe overall, I was actually shocked to learn that number. In the US, in the tier one, tier two VC firms, about 60% of general partners or the people investing mm -hmm. have built, the, operated the company before. So more than half. And it's a good balance. In Europe, there is stats that this percent is eight. So 90% eight. of early stage investors have never built a company. So it never should be 100 either way, but we feel that the balance is a bit off. Okay, so do you think it should be like 50-50? The way I think about it is there is this, uh, if you imagine this continuum from two girls and an idea to an IPO mm -hmm. and all these sort of investment stages that you have in between, there is a place for like former consultants and former financiers and bankers to become investors. And the, the more later you go, mm -hmm. the more you can do discounted cash flow analysis and analyze the data, all of that. But on day one of the company, there's very little of that. So so that I think we're, we're having this sort of hands-on operator experience is actually very useful. Right. That makes sense. And then the second word, the platform, which as far as I understand, is the way for you of saying, we don't want to be called a VC fund. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's drawing an emphasis, emphasis on something else. Uh, so first of all, there is a generation, a growing mm -hmm. class of sort of former entrepreneurs who built companies, exited, and then would like to invest. And for some reason, they haven't wanted to join existing VC firms. And so we spent a lot of time discussing that and, and understanding what the reasons are and unpacking that and creating something that sort of iterates on that model. And, mm -hmm. and if, if most of the VC firms in the world look like law firms or ad agencies, like boutique pyramid-shaped things where people like... There are partners and there are the like people that elbow to get up mm -hmm. there one day and like there's these weird dynamics that we're trying to avoid. So so plural is way more equalizing, mm -hmm. meritocratic between the people. There's uh, we've iterated on the models how we make decisions, how much skin do people have in the game, and sort of create iterating on different parts of the VC model. And then we have what we call a platform team, uh, which is actually doing uh, everything that, that that can be done in a more systematic, operationalized, productized mm -hmm, mm -hmm. way uh, for the portfolio companies. So the most valuable thing that Plural has is this FaceTime that we can give uh, like for a young founder to get access to somebody like Tavet Hinrichus who mm -hmm. built Wise or Ian Hogarth who built Songkick and, and that 
releasing hours in a day for those conversations to happen, there's a lot of stuff that we can actually be done in a more systematic platform. Right, anyways. right. And how many how many people do you have in the team right now? We have 15 people now. 15 people. And uh, when you when you work with these early stage startups that you uh, back, are there any repeating questions? Are there issues that you see uh, them having now that uh, was not the case uh, back in the time when you were building your companies? You Plural as a fund doesn't have a thesis. Mm -hmm. Every investor on Plural Platform does have uh, like their own passions and things. But one thing that is very common is that we always are looking for the sort of founders with the biggest missions. Like people like, how, how can this, if this thing succeeds, mm -hmm. how can it grow 100x? What is the dent in the universe that this company will leave? And that drives us very often to very, very ambitious and and uh, and sometimes crazy people who are, who are willing to undertake those missions. But there is, I think, a little bit of a difference between is it your first time or mm -hmm. are you a repeat mm -hmm. founder? And we have both examples in the portfolio now. We have 25 companies, so already a little bit of a data set uh, forming. And I think the problems and questions differ by by those types. Like if it's your third time around the block and you're going after a bigger and bigger problem, then you basically know what you want to do on the basics and you mm -hmm. are very specific and crisp about what you would hope Plural helps you with. Hey, I need to hire new VP engineering in the next six months to be able to scale from five to 50 engineers and set up the process and structures. There's like a very specific ask right. and then we can see how we, who do we bring in and which of us helps with that. And for a first time founder, it's very often like, okay, when I need you, I want you on WhatsApp in, in like mm -hmm. 24 hours or less. It's like I need a 30-minute call every week because there's so much stuff flying around. And so basically what we do to that is, and it's interesting that VC industry hasn't been doing that. We're very explicit with the uh, SLAs or service level agreements with huh. the founders. I actually put the stuff in my term sheet. Okay, this is what we agreed that I will do for you. And and that's a, a very healthy conversation to be had. Interesting. Any success stories? Any companies that you would like to highlight that you have back so far? Yes, yeah, so um, I have five companies. All of us invest one to two companies a year, one to two companies a year mm -hmm. pace. Uh, so kind of that allows us to be hands on and get really involved. Uh, I have five companies I've invested in now. Probably the biggest traction breakthrough to date has been Ready Player Me, mm -hmm. which is building a sort of future identity for the internet. Like like what uh, what will the avatars in the future 3D <laughs> worlds look like and and how can this be user-owned rather mm -hmm, than owned mm -hmm. by a particular game or chat maker. And they have millions of monthly active users now and they have thousands of developers building on top of their, their stack. Most recently, I've invested in v VS Particle mm -hmm. um, and they're, they've invented a matter printer. <laughs> So, mm -hmm. so basically, software-defined materials where you define what you want the particular metal-based material compound to do, it, and then you can physically print it out. So that, 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 that's a pretty wide range of uh, types of companies that you're investing in. Then. Absolutely, and it's it's eclectic and it's fun. And and like for example, VS Particle founders will forever know way more than I ever could about inorganic chemistry, but they've never built a company before. And so that's right, the that's right, the synergy right, right, that right, we can right. uh, we can bring with Plural. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, what I also wanted to talk about a little bit is just your general vision, your view on the European uh, tech uh, industry, basically what you think is happening, what you think are the big trends, uh, uh, whether you're optimistic at all uh, about the uh, trajectory that uh, we're all on. I am extremely bullish on Europe. Right. And uh, and there are a few, few aspects to that. So first of all, the reason why we're building plural is to have GDP level impact. 
And if you look at the math, it's actually pretty achievable. So, so for example, there is about $3 trillion in value in European tech today, and mm -hmm. European GDP is, is about um, $17 trillion. If you look at the top 30 most valuable tech companies in the world, uh, only two of them are from Europe. To yeah. make it to top 30, you have to be worth a little bit more than $100 billion. So if we can create over the next five years, 10 years, one more $100 billion plus company in Europe, mm -hmm. then we've already had a percentage point impact on European GDP. But we all know how the so the power laws work is that when you create the 100 billion company, then you probably create 10, 10 billion companies, yes. 100 unicorns and, and, and all these sort of thousands of jobs and sort of the massive impact to the planet. So, so actually working to find these sort of outliers, the most missionary, the most ambitious founders and making them, uh, helping them to, to make their, their, their dreams happen in Europe actually has a very foreseeable results. And we already have it, again, being Estonian, we've had, Estonia is like the MVP for that in Europe. Like Estonian, 15 years ago, before Skype was sold to eBay the first, for the first time, nobody knew what the startup is. And now it's like uh, one and a half percent of the working population in the country works in early stage tech companies. <laughs> and, and we are having percentage point level impact. And the other thing is that I think we are in, in uh, fascinating crossroads of where do we want technology to take humanity, mm -hmm. where there is this sort of US model, which is very sort of liberal markets driven five, six trillion dollar companies control all the sort of direction of the industry. And then you have the Chinese model, which is like a centralized authoritarian communist party decides everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think there is the middle way where this European humanist values and balancing like what do humans need? What citizen own? Do citizens control the data? Like that sort of things. And it's and not, bureaucracy. Uh, bureaucracy, <laughs> but but it's, it's, uh, it's like... Uh, I think between those, I don't think, like if you pull somebody uh, off the streets in, in South America or Southeast Asia asking, okay, do you want the US way or Chinese way? You have two choices. I think that you will find people who are like, actually, I have other preferences in life. <laughs> and that, I think, is the European opportunity of right. like, okay, will we build responsible AI or, or like, will it be Communist Party driven? <laughs> But do you? But uh, so okay. So since you mentioned AI already, so do you actually believe that the European approach makes sense? Because what you hear a lot uh, from, uh, especially some industry practitioners, is that uh, excessive regulation might actually uh, lead to uh, Europe being underdeveloped uh, in this uh, in this regard, and that we are not going to be able to become a real player on this uh, stage just because everything is being regulated before it's even built properly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, excessive regulation can kill all kinds of industries, and let's fully, fully agree with that. I don't think the answer is zero regulation. I think the the most recent example that we we can see is uh, what has happened in crypto. Mm -hmm. Is that in Europe there is regulation? It's imperfect. Like, or you could always be different in in uh, in nuances, but there is clarity. And so this year, earlier this year, I met like one after one young US-based founders who say that the next crypto company I will build in Europe, because at least I know for what I go to prison and for what I don't. In US, <laughs> you don't have that clarity. <laughs> you just go to prison. Exactly. Like in US, the same industry is governed by unelected people in SEC just giving verdicts afterwards. And you, there's no way how you can proactively be compliant mm -hmm, with anything mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. there's this sort of desire not to be regulated or like, like and, and that I think is, is a metaphor to think about in AI as well, is that what is the right regulation? What is the things that, how do we avoid regulating the future that we don't know, but set 
basic societal checks and balances on like, okay, if you build a model that is like five times uh, more powerful than GPT-4, maybe you would run these tests. Mm -hmm, <laughs> like mm -hmm. that's not that too much to ask, right? Or, or, uh, or, uh, or other sort of things that you can, you can enforce conversations even if you don't sort of, it's not about, like regulation is not mm -hmm. about like, let's ban X. Is that something you're thinking about in general, regulation in AI and in general on the European stage? Yes, like not not in depth, but uh, in the plural portfolio, probably about 17-18% of our capital is deployed in, in AI. And where we are extremely bullish is about sort of applications where are, which are vertically accelerating something. Mm -hmm. Like would it be material sciences or would it be legal or would it be safety online, like, that, like cyber defense, like biodefense, like that's sort of areas which we're very, very bullish about. And I don't think the current conversations about AI in Europe in any way sort of stifle innovation there. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. the, the arguments are more about basically building core models. Do you open source them? Do you have a single company control them? It's very geopolitical and, yeah. and currently we are not involved in that stuff. Right. I see. And since it's already... Okay, 30th of November, not even December yet, but it's end of the year, so we can also talk predictions a little bit uh, next year. I hate year. predicting. <laughs> <laughs> but like you, you have to be, you have to be thinking about what's coming. What? Uh, how do you see the next year and the next decade in European tech in a very broad strokes? First, as mentioned, extremely bullish in Europe. I think technology conversations will become increasingly value spaced. And and uh, that has good sides and bad sides. I think the outcomes will be better for the human users, mm -hmm. like people who are building and and uh, sort of using technology. Um, I think that's that's one thing that I always keep in mind is like technology doesn't have moral and ethics. Like you can you can use YouTube to teach math or teach making a bomb. Like yeah, the yeah. technology is exactly the same. It depends on how you use that. And and the more complex and the more powerful technology becomes and the more ubiquitous in all fields of life, that sort of human aspect, what are the values we want to pursue? What are the, the, the things that we want to reserve for humans? I think that part of the conversation intensifies and I think Europe has a massive role uh, in that. The other thing I think is very interesting and unnoticed is I think the migration flows of talent hmm. have shifted. U.S. that used to be the very clear destination for anybody who wanted to build tech. I think uh, Atomic just released yes, this research. Yes, I re yes, I read it. Europe, yes. Europe, Europe had a bigger net gain. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at I don't know, U.S. elections and you think, that, okay, if you're a French or an Indian uh, AI genius, do you want to live in like an increasingly polarized U.S. that is actually where you have a presidential candidate who says that immigration is bad? Like, yeah. so, so there is like things that, that shift, I think, Technology will always be built where the where the talent is, and uh, and that uh, that I think is something that gives uh, Europe a strong edge. Right. Yeah, I I was very surprised actually to read this uh, thing in uh, in the report. It's really it's really quite interesting. Uh, so when I read uh, uh, this thing in the report about uh, Europe being the net beneficiary of uh, talent, do you think this is actually a trend? Do you think this is something that will keep? Uh, happening in the years to come, or is it just uh, a consequence of this uh, political instability and uh, polarization? And if that gets fixed, then uh, the talent will flow in the direction of the US again. So, what I, the most recent company that I studied was called Teleport. Mm -hmm. We're building software for people on the move to figure out where to live and work in the world. And one of the core theses that we had and, and the realization was that. Uh, 
as work shifts into into new models, mm-hmm. and especially in the post-COVID world where you have distributed work is very normal, the more people can sort of liber- liberately operate mm-hmm. and sort of write code and commit to GitHub or, or like hang out with their team for two days a week and then work elsewhere for three days a week, the more people will actually choose where to live based on cl- criteria around the quality of life and their, their sort of desires, what they want. Do you have fa- uh, family? Do you want to mm-hmm. have the best education? What kind of climate do you want? Like that, These are the things that start bubbling up if you're not right. moving for work. And I think Europe has amazing places with amazing quality of life. For, so so that, I think, is one that talks for us. The other one is um, besi- there are push factors and pull factors. Mm-hmm. So push factors are the ones that are driving you away from somewhere, and pull factors are something that are inviting. And that, there, I think, Europe has pockets where things are pretty good, but mm-hmm. in general, we can go way better. It's like uh, Estonia now has had a startup visa for three or four years, as a founder, if I need to hire somebody from outside of EU, I can extend the job offer on Friday and they will be in the office working on Monday. Like that's wow. that's like, and if you offer that, then from a perspective of talent coming from, let's say, Sri Lanka or India or, or, or South uh, Africa, like, okay, I want to continue my career in Europe or in the US, will I wait for six months for a embassy slot to mm-hmm. have a chance of a US visa? Or will I actually go to places that welcome me? And and that I think is a mindset that Europe should continue to adopt. Right. No, that, that that's a good uh, that, that's a good point. And I really hope that uh, elsewhere in Europe we also get uh, this type of regulation that allows for easier uh, talent uh, talent attraction. That's I think the the countries that figure out that it's it's uh, not about like do we let people in there or not. But it's about like how do we become the most attractive destination Mm -hmm. for people building the future, and it's a global competition. Like these countries will win in the next fifty years. Right. And to wrap it up, how do you see uh, the trends and the future, and what do you expect to happen in the actual VC uh, industry? I think VC industry as a whole has seen very little model innovation. So I Mm -hmm. like if you think that like YC did something completely new. Entrepreneur First did something completely new, different stage. Mm-hmm. And so we, we hope that a little bit with plural and doing things a little bit differently and innovating, iterating on the model, hopefully over time we'll shift the industry to a little bit more new norms as well. I don't know, simple things. Like as a founder, I always hated when a VC gives me money and then takes like 50,000 back for their legal fees. <laughs> Yeah, like so, we don't do that at Plural. Like these mm-hmm. simple, small things that change, shift mindsets and standards. Like we pay our own legal fees. Like, like not take it from the capital we just gave to the founder. And so, so that sort of stuff, I think, is is gradually shifting. On a macro level, um, uh, I think one thing that has been noticeable in the last year or two now has been uh, pace is slowing, mm-hmm. and that can be painful for founders. I think it actually has massively increased the quality of conversations VCs can have with founders. Like instead of having one half an hour call on Saturday and deciding on Monday, now mm-hmm. you can spend two months getting to know each other. It's like a 10-year marriage that you're getting into. So so maybe it's better to know each other a little bit better. Is that how it was in 2021, 2022? Um, Just like uh, yeah, three days week. for due diligence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that's the typical. And, and we didn't have Blural yet, luckily. So we were we raised fund one during that, that time mm-hmm. and started investing right after. So it's been a very, very good sort of... Right. And there is a lot of conversations about uh, uh, closing the uh, funding gap uh, that's on the more later uh, stages for European startups. I mean, you're an early stage founder yeah. uh, firm, but uh, do you see uh, do you see any positive changes on the on those later stages so that companies would not have 
to go to the US, for example, for bigger rounds? Yeah, I think it's, um, first, I, I don't think there is a like, massive issue when companies raise wherever they can raise. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that in in itself is a problem. Probably more like will where will the exits happen and at what stage? And will there will there be more ambition to build something really, mm -hmm. really huge mm -hmm. instead of selling out that like five hundred million that you want to grow a five billion company and there is a market you can exit to at mm -hmm. five billion public or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So I think there will be things that we tackle. But I think it's kind of the over the last decade or two, that has been the normal cycle of evolution in ecosystems mm -hmm. in general. Like first you will have local angels, then you will have local seed funds, then you will have local series A, and that, that sort of success breeds success and people capital flows into follow things that are working on the early stage and so forth. So the way I think about it is like, how far do you have to travel for which size of this check? <laughs> and, and like 15 years ago, you had to go to US yeah, to raise yeah, a 2 million yeah, yeah, seed, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now you- That's very different now. Last year, I think, or two years ago, I think there was a, a deal we were involved in in Estonia where there was, I think, a 20 million investment and the emails were in Estonian. <laughs> so, so that's like, <laughs> okay, that's, uh, the bar is getting higher. Perfect. Th thank you so much. Thanks a lot for taking the time and uh, good luck with everything you're doing at Plural. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And this is all we have time for in this bonus episode of the TNW podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed it. Once again, big thanks to Kinga and Stan for coming on the show. If you like our show, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague about it and follow our updates on social media. Just search for the next web and you will find us almost literally everywhere. Music and sound engineering is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Feel free to email me with any questions, suggestions, and opinions. I'm at andre at thenextweb.com. Happy holidays and happy new year, and I'm going to talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.